Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary, and in a moment, you're going to hear from Still Allison. I want to get right into the episode, but I just want to say this is going to be a care and keeping of you episode, and we're so lucky to be joined by Victoria Rodriguez. Allison's going to introduce her in a moment, but she's a therapist and an expert on medical trauma and anxiety. She's also born and raised in New Orleans, so she's perfectly equipped to help us think through the Marie Grace and Cecile books, and frankly, how to live through our own times. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. So we are gathered today uh, with Victoria Rodriguez, who actually reached out to us, which was awesome, upon reading the Marie Grace and Cecile books. And much like one of our characters that we've been covering, moved to New Orleans as a young person. Victoria is a Felicity in a kit and says, please don't hold that against her as if we ever would. And we are joining her today to talk a little bit about her specialty. We're thinking a little bit about how to take the Cecile and Marie Grace trauma and think about it in context and also the world we live in. And we really could not have imagined a better guest than Victoria. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. So, you know, even when speaking about reaching out to y'all, I had this moment of I think when Marie Grace is even at the parade where she's like, do I even belong here? Like New Orleans is my (laughs) home. And I'm like, am I New Orleans enough? So I called my friend and I'm like, you know, I'm worried, like, you know, can I, can I represent this classical city? And she's like, Victoria, do you remember when they canceled math class to bring us on a ghost tour in the French quarter? And I was like, you're right. (laughs) I am the city. So (laughs) just to give a little background, I um, go to school right now at the university of new Orleans. I specialize in medical trauma. So um, yeah, business is good and health anxiety. So, um, I am a licensed professional counselor and I'm just really excited to have this conversation today because even though Marie Grace and Cecile came out a little bit later or by the time that, you know, I was reading the American Girl books, I was not as into them by 2011. So it's really interesting to come back and revisit them. And even as an adult be like, wow, what is it like to go through a crisis um, in the city that's already gone through so many crises? So I'm just really excited to have that conversation with you guys today. Absolutely. I mean, if you don't mind, speaking of crises, I would love to kind of go back in time with you and hear about kind of your American Girl story. So, you know, we are not going to hold your Felicity Standom against you. Far from it. And Kit, who we have not met yet, full disclosure. We've heard a lot of good things. We've not met her yet. So can you kind of take us through, like, how did you get into American Girl? Like, why Felicity etc etc yeah so my mom is a park ranger at the Jean Lafitte sites here in Louisiana and so my brother and I were always raised you know to appreciate history and love history so she bought me all of the American Girl books I think I'm not even sure who was the last one at the time by the time she was still buying for me it still might have been Josefina but I just remember she got me like these beautiful um Felicity books, like the ones that you could get like six in a pack and it was all in one book. And just like, Mm. I can remember just like feeling the heaviness of those and like the physicality of those books. And the funny thing was like, when I told her mom, like, I'm going to be talking about, you know, American girls, like, do you remember that? And do you remember how, you know, you said we couldn't afford 
any of the dolls. And I was like, but then why did you buy me all of those like briar horses? So there are like two types, right? <laughs> like there's the American girls and then there's the briar horse girls. So I did have all the books, but unfortunately um, did not have the dolls. So I'm, I'm curious to explore that also in my family of origin of, you know, why, why not the dolls, but why instead these very mm. expensive horses instead? <laughs> um, so yeah, that is kind of my history with American girls. And unfortunately, probably, probably again, related to what these girls went through, I actually ended up losing all of those books mm. um, in Hurricane Katrina. So it's very meaningful again, wow. to like kind of come back to these stories and talk about like the physicality of the books and like what it means to, to lose, um, you know, to lose material goods, you know, as these girls go through as well and kind of grapple with. Wow, that's a really intense personal connection. And I think a powerful one that I'm sure that we'll keep coming back to. I'm kind of wondering, you you mentioned before that you had math can class canceled mm -hmm. to go on a ghost tour, which is like, tr like completely my <laughs> dream scenario, like cancel math, take me on a ghost tour. I'm sure Allison can probably <laughs> relate to this. But it seems like from that anecdote alone, like even though you're not a historian or history person per se, that's not your professional practice, like history mm -hmm. of New Orleans is so embedded in your day-to-day -day life, even from when you're a child. Like I'm wondering, as you sat down to approach the Marie Grace and Cecile books, like was this new history to you? Was it familiar mm -hmm. history? Like yeah. how did you react to it? I think, again, it's so funny how the history in New Orleans um, is so cyclical. So if you go on the website, I want to make sure I'm like quoting it exactly what was on what was on the New Orleans website. So for tourism, it was like thrilling, colorful, tragic, inspiring. And like, <laughs> I was like, did they get that verbiage from these books? So I think for me, living in New Orleans, Whoa. they have always just kind Whoa. of, there is this obsession with, you know, the storytelling and like the narrative of the city as well. Like it doesn't just function as a place, but also as several different places in time, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm. Now, when these books came out, you had kind of aged out of American Girl, but we've talked to folks before. There does tend to be sort of a stirring in communities when books come out that are so directly relevant. We heard when we talked to people about the Caroline books that even folks who had kind of aged beyond American Girl anyone kind of in the maritime world or near Sackett's Harbor working on ships got really excited, right? Did any of that kind of happen in New Orleans or do you think there was no buzz? Like we've been kind of curious because when characters such as Rebecca Rubin also came out, mm -hmm. there was this little mini industry of tours and, and we haven't heard of anything like that. Did we miss it or was this kind of a thing in communities that at least you're aware of? Honestly, not um, not at all. And I looked for it too, even mm. I think as you guys had too, of like, how cool would it be to have a little tour of, you know, explaining um, these books and kind of their relativity to the city and then end with a steamboat ride, you know, mm. how fun would that be? Um, but I have not seen anything in the city or heard at the time of kind of this, um, this recognition or acknowledgement mm. of the of these books. And I think too, in general, like Cecile and Mary Grace have kind of been overlooked even in the American girl communities that I move in. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I think you guys have talked before about the chaos of moving from like one narrative to another, um, much like the Twilight series tried to relive the Twilight series through Edward's perspective. So you're kind of getting a lot wow. of repetitiveness. <laughs> and so I'm not sure 
necessarily how that showed up. Should there be a Mardi Gras parade dedicated to them entirely? <laughs> I don't know. That is not my decision to make. Wow. I, I'm actually just, I have the vision in my mind that you invoked of a tour, a theme tour for them that would end with a steamboat ride. And I can't help but feel like, would the steamboat ride include your dad standing on the dock being like, bye, like, I have no idea where you're going, but I can't parent you anymore. So see ya. I doubt he would even make it to the dock. No, like, you'd have to there. just write it on the blackboard, you know, like 11 p.m. I'll, I'll be on the steamboat. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. That's actually generous of you to suggest the doctor would say thank you. Dr. Dad would sign off with a thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thaddeus, you know, he's got places to go. He has he has a business to run as successful or unsuccessful um, as it may be. I mean, his personal mortality rate, like we can't even those numbers like we can't fathom. Like I can't go there. Yeah, yeah. And I think you'll see, like, even when I was looking up um, kind of the history of yellow fever, because got to be honest, I'm not working with a lot of clients right now who have experienced yellow fever trauma. I mean, it's for the best. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so even just in looking at, like, the old narratives that these medical professionals would write, um, it's so funny how the research I'm reading now would, like, show up with the same themes of isolation specifically. So I have to mm -hmm. wonder, like, whether, you know, she's talking about mary grace is talking about how isolated she felt from her dad but i'm also wondering and how isolated dr gardner felt you know while trying to quote unquote solve this problem you know mm. however much he was really solving it at the time um so i think that would be interesting to kind of have more of his perspective too a third perspective if you will in a book of two <laughs> to add on top of that um yeah yeah, every American Girl book deals with relationships between parents and kids very differently, right? Mm. Even when Felicity's mother is very ill, we're not super sure what's going on because Felicity's not really sure what's going on. There's kind of some silences that leave some gaps in the narrative, I think, on purpose. And when you're talking about, you know, Dr. Tad, Dr. Dad, I have this completely different perspective on him now. I've been reading Necropolis, which is like a super new book about yellow fever and the cotton kingdom. And it talks about how people, um, the phrasing in the book is like making a killing off the dying. And the way that doctors did so well through these moments. And I'm not trying to tea Dolores, Dr. Dad. But like, what did he know? What brought him down there? And how much is in the family bank account? Because they've liquidated some of their assets. They've gotten rid of staff. And I also was really struck by, you know, the decision to send Marie Grace kind of off scene, right? To send mm -hmm. her somewhere else. It's so casual in the books in a lot of ways and kind of learning about what doctors might have known versus other people it had to be strategic, right? Like this idea that New Orleans is sort of the problem. And if you go somewhere else, you might get away from the problem. Him being a doctor, that has to have more to do with it. So I'm not yeah. saying Todd is completely nefarious. I am open to it. Like if that's part of the tour and he kind of is in a cloak and comes from around a corner, yes. I think we could reinterpret him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like he, I don't know, but is that giving him too much credit? I don't know if he thinks that far Dad, I don't, I mean, where's his whole family? Wow. Where's his whole, where's family? The whole family? And also, mm. I mean, I, I need to kind of hold both of you accountable because you have erased Mrs. O'Brien from know. this conversation. Mm, and I mean, you did mention liquidating assets, and I guess we could say that she was an asset who was liquidated. Um, By her choice. We're yeah, Mrs. O'Brien chose that life. We don't know. Did she? 
According to whom? I don't know. I mean, that's the fourth perspective. <laughs> like, you want the Dr. Dad perspective. Yeah. I'm saying I want Mrs. O'Brien. Like, what was she hiding from in that bedroom where she was, like, napping? Mm-hmm. Like, I think she was in there, like, undercover, literally, and was like, get me out of here. Like, what is this place? Yeah. One of the most accurate things about the book, I think, is the fact that Ellen dies and there are these kind of passing references to her death, but people move on, right? And kind of this idea of strange people or new people being casualties Mm -hmm. that some folks in New Orleans and other cities, obviously, are are kind of willing to accept. Could you talk a little bit more about, like, what it would mean to be, like, really New Orleans, right? Like, I love your ghost tour cred. I think that's, like, good enough for us. We're not from New Orleans. What what does that mean? Like, what's that about, like, being from New Orleans? My friend who's from Malta puts it really interestingly where she's like, I never feel more like I'm in Europe than when I'm in New Orleans. <laughs> so I think even mm. when Cecile is like, mm, I don't consider myself an American, like, mm. that's probably the most accurate um form of Mm. exceptionalism that still, I think still shows up today where, you know, New Orleans is different. New Orleans is special. We see that, um, how do I want to put it? Whether, you know, that's through civil rights movement or even Black Lives Matter today of just, you know, almost this narrative of like, okay, New Orleans is the exception, even though Mm. we have a lot of people asking, um, is it? And so I think when you ask yourself, what does it mean to be New Orleans? You have to ask yourself, well, what does it mean to be from Boston, whether that's personally? Um, so again, I have a brother in Boston. So, you know, we we do the trail, we do all the visits up there. And, you know, even just coming back, I was, you know, kind of taken aback of, you know, like, I'm again, how Marie Grace was. Am I Marie mm-hmm. Grace? I don't know. I'm rethinking this as I'm saying this out loud. <laughs> you know, in comparison to kind of some of the older cities, New Orleans is just so European and so old. I don't know if you can even compare it to, well, what does it mean to be New Orleans? You know, well, what does it really mean to be from from a place that is still to this day in some ways very un-American and very un-Louisiana in a lot of ways, you know, unique in that way, too. Mm -hmm. I think politically, culturally, just really, really different. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means to be unlike the rest of Louisiana for those of us not lucky enough to (laughs) be hep to Louisiana? Yeah, so... And again, like not coming from a historical perspective, what I can say in just in my work in community mental health, um, which is where I would like travel to clients in their homes to provide counseling services. Um, Mm. And as somebody who goes to school in New Orleans, but also lives like an hour away, like along a bayou, like right outside my window right now is it it's kind of funny like the the farther outside you travel of certain sections of new orleans it really is like traveling back in time and Mm. so we use a term like up the bayou and down the bayou so by down the bayou you know it means that you're traveling closer and closer and closer to grand isle you know which is the very tip i think you guys talked about it when talking about the awakening and up the bayou we consider more towards baton rouge lafayette you know all of those areas and and really what i what i mean by louisiana is so different from the rest of new orleans is that it's really you know not just in terms of like conservativeness conservatism or progressive um values but also just in how you move in the world so again new orleans feels so much more european and then the rest of Louisiana feels very, um, feels very Cajun. And then you have North Louisiana, which is more 
traditionally I think of when you think of South. I'm describing these aesthetics like very poorly here. So the no, yeah. So the best way I can describe it is it's like really the bayou is kind of, it kind of like information travels along and like uh, progressive values travel along the bayou until you get to the end which is new orleans so for me even traveling up and down the bayou and visiting families in their homes you know it would it would almost be like crossing into an entirely different country when you're when i would go into homes in new orleans you know just completely different family values mm-hmm. um and probably the only thing that would connect them which i think is talked about in the books as well is that theme of of religion or, or not even necessarily religion but kind of this like cultural value around catholicism that follows mm-hmm. these families um but tell, tell me if that's making sense or if that needs more clarification makes sense to me and, and i mean you've given me a like huge insight into because obviously i'm not um from there i've never had the um benefit of traveling there hope to someday i know allison's been Mm -hmm. to new orleans um but you know i just love hearing your perception even as like about the books like i'm really interested in how you've grounded yourself in these books what your experience was and i'm wondering if you might want to preface this by kind of telling us a little bit about like your work Mm -hmm. like your Mm -hmm. professional practice like what are you interested in researching and and kind of like how that's informing you kind of walking through these books with us. Yeah. So, so I think like you guys, when I, when I first started these books, I was so excited, you know, for, um, for you guys to talk about, oh, we're going to New Orleans, you know, there's going to be Mardi Gras, there's going to be balls. And then you look at the year and you're like, oh no, this is not, (laughs) this is not good. So in kind of grounding myself with like this historical notch, and it's kind of weird because you're reading it on like three different fronts. Again, like these books are so deep because it's like, okay, I know what's going to happen to Mary, Grace, and Cecile, but I also know what's going to happen to us in a pandemic, you know, 10 years later. (laughs) So there's a lot of layers, I think, that I connected um, to these books. And even I think when Allison was talking about about Ellen, of just um, even when, when Ellen when Ellen passes, you know, kind of in the next book, everybody's like, well, I also knew Ellen. Like Ellen was also a friend of mine. <laughs> and um, kind of just that that energy, you know, I got to see that in a lot of my work too, of, you know, how are you, how are you connecting to COVID or to kind of all of the multiple medical traumas, you know, that we've, that we've been through um, as a state um, and as a city. And then what is your, what, like, how close are you? almost that trauma, you know, and I'm not saying like, it's a measurement, you know, trauma and suffering is never a measurement, but it it does seem to be a way that we conceptualize, you know, our experiences through COVID of, you know, did, did we get COVID? Did a close one get COVID? You know, who in our family has passed from COVID? Um, So that's something that I see in my practice too, in specializing in medical trauma is just kind of the, the ways that we measure our experiences and our closeness and even time has been kind of weird, right? So we always say like, oh, it feels like just last year or it feels like 10 years ago since the pandemic started. But I view it more as, okay, there's there's the time of, um, of Tiger King and then there's the time after. And so that's really, wow. you know, a, a BC, a, a comparison, a line in the sand, if you will, of how I conceptualize <laughs> the time from COVID. Wow. And can, may we ask, like, what's your take on Tiger King? <laughs> Didn't watch it. That's just what was going on in the world around me. Yeah. Like, that's wow. that's how desperate Gloria. I think we were for some, like, something to hold on to, like, something to ground us through time. 
much as um, much as Cecile and Mary Grace, it's it's divide. You know, you know exactly what's going on in each of the six books. Who's sick in each book? What, you know, how hard is the pandemic hit in each book? And and so much in the same way. Um, that's how I divide the chapters mm. of the pandemic personally for me. When you were talking, you got me thinking. It is sort of strange. It's not that it's invalid, but it is sort of strange that the central intergenerational trauma of this book is grounded in disease versus slavery. Mm. And it's and it's not that one should be privileged over the other, but when you think about if we had been lucky enough to get future Addie books, right? Or or to get books that would kind of go in different directions, we we've never gotten those and, and not that we're owed those, but the fact that within Cecile's family, there isn't that kind of intergenerational trauma and the illness of Armand is is a bit of an, an exceptional incident. And then comparatively, Marie Grace, that is sort of the central intergenerational trauma of not just her family, but of the books. The fact that they've already had to survive illness and now they're kind of going right into the belly of the beast. Um, I feel like I watched Tiger King like outside of COVID because I knew it was coming out and watched it like the second it came out because I was very passionate about it. And so I always feel like I'm like slightly off kilter. Like for some people, it's like Tiger King making TikTok drinks. And I'm like, oh, I did it too early. I missed, I missed the proper timeline. It's never too late to watch. Um, I've read part of his autobiography from prison. Mm -hmm. It's never too late. Wow. Wow. What a message for us all. Like it's, it's never too late. It's never too late. It, it may be for Joe. Memoir. It may be for Joe. I might be. Yeah. I, I <laughs> Sadly. I mean, we live in a carceral state. You're from Louisiana, you know, so. Yes. Well, I was actually thinking when you guys were talking about Tiger King is like when I saw, I think I saw the first two or three episodes of that and it feels like that was 10 years mm-hmm. ago. So like I kind of feel like through traumatic or like long pandemic periods or, you know, even thinking about like what Hurricane Katrina was like for you, like do you in your memory have a sense of the feeling of that time or does it seem even more distant or closer and Mm. does trauma affect how we remember because to me it's like i know we're in like year three of this but it feels like it's much long much further away from me now yeah so you know one of the central tenets about trauma is is at some point um trauma can really you know our response to trauma that disassociating we're like okay does time feel real do we feel like we're really in our bodies you know, at, at one point, that was a coping skill. If you were experiencing something really painful or you were experiencing something really unsafe. And, you know, I always say to, to keep you safe and to help you feel safe, um, your brain kind of just like shut off that connection. And at one mm-hmm. time that really worked for you, but there gets to be a point where like your brain just starts getting confused about, okay, is this a safe situation? Is this not a safe situation? Um, so, so even from an example from my own life, um, I really do not remember like specifics about Katrina. And um, it was only kind of this year when we experienced Ida and kind of all of that stress that came along with it. Um, Hurricane Ida, just to specify, I guess. Um, we don't get earthquakes down here and I don't even know if you named them. So that was a a trauma that kind of I went through more collectively and as an adult where finally I said, Oh, maybe like I do have a lot of leftover trauma from this. Um, but again, that's kind of like my brain and my body making sure that Mm -hmm. I was still able to function, you know, as, um, as a 10 year old at that time, kind of Mm -hmm. losing every, 
um, every material possession, right? Of like, how do we make sense of the world? How do I make sense of that? Um, so yeah, definitely. And I, I know that's that's an experience of a lot of other Katrina transplants or Ida transplants um, that I have known and work with to this day. I'm wondering if, you know, that was something that really struck me reading the books with Marie Grace was that, you know, she experiences trauma as a very young child. And in I think the first scene of book one, she doesn't recognize Uncle Luke. And then when she sees him, it's like suddenly within minutes, she has all these recovered memories of times with him and her mother. And it seems like her memory does seem to be very affected by the trauma of the loss, where we see her both unlocking memories of her mother, but also being afraid that she's going to forget even more. And at one point, Cecile is like not a super comforting friend. I think in like book five or six is like, yeah, like no context. Like, yeah, so your mom died, right? Um, do you remember her? And it's like, whoa, Cecile, please. Like, this woman didn't remember Uncle Luke in book one. Like, I'm so concerned about her. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, what you make of the depiction of her trauma of the loss of her mother. Yeah, um, I see that as very accurate, but even more so when they are taking care of the baby. Um, mm. of just kind of this transference where she has transferred kind of all of this caring, you know, and this, I, I want to make sure I'm choosing like the exact right words, right? Almost like this yearning of like, okay, if I can keep this baby safe, if I can protect this baby, then that means I'm okay. Because mm. I am then adult enough and I have the skills to, to protect him and keep him safe. So that means I must be in a good place. Um, so I think that actually shows up a lot with her, too, of kind of how this trauma has been passed down. And then I also think about in Cecile's family, like her mom just kind of telling her, like, no, we're safe. Like, it's going to be OK. Don't even think about it. We're safe. And, you know, I just keep thinking about what Cecile is going through as well, kind of medical trauma of her brother of like. I'm one and we don't we don't really get that much messaging, but I'm wondering how much Cecile is also worried for herself of like, OK, if my older brother can be this unsafe, mm. what does that mean for me? And I think otherwise we're kind of given this almost like adult reaction and maybe not necessarily, you know, a um, an eight or nine year old's reaction mm. of, you know, OK, but how do how do I relate to this? And I actually think Lavinia, um, bless her. It's probably one of the more accurate depictions where she's in, Whoa. she's in this hospital and she's like, well, you know, my sister got yellow fever. Like, I just think you should know. I think it's important <laughs> that, you know, my relation to what's going on here, um, which is kind of more of a, of an accurate depiction of what I get where, you know, the, the kids at that age, like they'll say something that they kind of hear repeat. And I'm sure it was repeated over and over in her home again of the importance and the emphasis um, and the real danger for her sister. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting to see that come out, maybe at not even um, a necessarily appropriate time, right? We needed a real professional here <laughs> to tell us that Lavinia was a healthy example of something because that was not where we landed. But I see now that we needed you. So thank you for being here. But, you know, I guess like connecting to today, like for parents listening, like what is a healthy way to speak to your child about what's going on? Yeah. Um, that is really complex. And I was trying to say like, oh, I wish I had a script for mom, you know, when she's trying to tell for mama, when she's trying to tell yeah. Cecile, you know, like, hey, it's going to be okay. So what, what I suggest 
to parents or caretakers is something that you you can promise your children is like we're going to do your best to keep you safe you are safe right now and i am here with you in this moment to kind of keep them grounded keep them present there's also like cultural considerations as well so maybe one child um, in their family culture it would be appropriate for cecile to help out with the caring of her brother and maybe for another culture it wouldn't so i think when giving advice or scripts to parents of how to talk to their kids about this type of trauma or when a family member is sick it's really important to take mm -hmm. into account you know your own values as a family you know how much do you want your child to be involved you know how much do you assess that they can handle um but i th i think actually my mom like she, you know her heart is in the right place of saying like you know of emphasizing that safety of like no matter what mm -hmm. you are safe right now and we are going to do our best you know to keep everybody safe because that's a value in our family and that's what we prioritize as a family mm -hmm. so i think this is a different question even though it probably sounds very similar we get asked a lot by people who have children who listen to the show or who care about American Girl, whether they should hand, you know, sets of these books to young people now, right? To 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds right now and kind of the usefulness of these books. You know, we could imagine a different world, but the world that we live in is frighteningly similar in certain ways to like some of what's going on in this book. And it doesn't have to be a yes or a no, but do you think these are useful books for young people to be handed or finding right now? No. Um, and, and, and it can be, no. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. Okay. So wow. next question. fine for me to read. No, but certain, <laughs> certainly it depends wow. on the child. And they're obviously, sure, I am sure. not in a place developmentally where I can handle, you know, where I'm having to see clients who are going through COVID um, or going through the death of a loved one and then be like, oh gosh, like, girl, maybe you need to talk about Cecile. Like, do I have the book for you to process this? Um, mm. But certainly, yeah, that's such a good question of like, how do we, you know, how do we use these books to like relate to our own kids, you know, and, and promote wellness? Yeah, I mean, we were talking briefly, you mentioned bibliotherapy off air. And to me, these books are like the opposite of bibliotherapy mm -hmm. right now for kids, especially like living through COVID. I don't know if this would comfort. Again, I'm not a parent. Yeah, I don't know that I would prescribe these. And again, I'm not a therapist either. So just my sense. I mean, I wouldn't prescribe this for a grown adult woman. And by that, I mean me. Um <laughs> So, I mean, that's where I'm at. Yeah, uh, it's such a good question. And, and again, like, I think it depends on a child. Like, maybe there is a child out there who is, you know, I I need a narrative to attach to. You know, mm -hmm. much like I was a horse girl. And so, naturally, Felicity, wow. just chaotic, you know, mm -hmm. that is um, that is who I attach to. We absolutely don't hold it against you that you love Felicity and Kit. I think it makes perfect sense that you like these like really cool and dynamic characters. Something you also said to us that I thought was really making me think about depictions of Marie Grace. You mentioned it with her caretaking of the abandoned baby, but the way that she steps up to act as a nurse, something that you are kind of, you know, especially qualified to talk about is white saviorism and caretaking. Mm. Could you maybe kind of walk us through what's going on there and maybe why that kind of why you think that kind of gets plopped into the narrative the way that it does? Yeah. So when we talk about 
white saviorism, as I know from the research and community mental health, right, is that really what white saviorism is about is it is an emotional reaction. It really has nothing to do with the outcomes or necessarily the actual behaviors, but it's about the emotion that the white person or the person with privilege is having in that behavior or in that context of helping. So I imagine for Cecile and Mary Grace, even though they're engaging in the same behaviors of like going to these Mm -hmm. children, eating their bread, singing to them, playing with them, they might be having completely different conceptualizations of that experience. So for Cecile, while it might be something that's kind of, it's kind of part of her, her family, like her, the, the culture of her family of like, we are helpers. This is what we do. It's just like built into the routine for Mary Grace. It's like, this serves a purpose to who I am as a person. This is about me having an emotional reaction and less about, okay, but what are the outcomes for, I think Philip is his name. The baby. Mm-hmm. Do you know for yep. the, okay, for the baby. Yeah, for Philip. So I would be curious to know kind of that internal, maybe more of that internal dialogue that's going on for her when she is or believes that she is helping um, this baby, even though we might today, and I think even in the 1850s kind of question, okay, what is what is a small girl doing with a baby? Like, what whose plan was this? Where where is this plan going? And what you know what effect is she really you know is she hoping to have, or the reaction, the emotional response that she's hoping to have? Um, so that's what we kind of know from the research, and I think it um, it speaks to those differences in the books as well. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more internal dialogue going on there. Mm. What do you think about kind of the depictions of race in the books, particularly around healthcare and kind of different um, mm-hmm. opportunities? Like I know we know that even in our world today, like even really elite people like Serena Williams almost died in childbirth because she was not believed mm-hmm. um, her account of her own body and the pain that she was in and almost missed a major complication. You know, it's interesting that in the books we have Marie Grace's dad stepping in to care for Cecile's family, and it's presented as believable because Cecile's family is so of an upper class. But, you know, I kind of wonder, like, what you make of how the books navigate race, generally speaking, but also Mm -hmm. in kind of like these healthcare settings. Frankly, it feels a little bit chaotic just reading through it. It's like, what is the sense or rhyme or reason? And then some of... (laughs) It's like sometimes they'll be like there are steadfast rules around race. And then at other times, it's like those rules don't even exist Mm. or those rules. There's like the privilege of those rules can be ignored at times. Mm. So I think for me, it was a little um, a little confusing. And I think um, I think much like the Gilded Age, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, why are we not talking more about this, um, you know, impressively wealthy black family? that there were many of in New Orleans at the time, you know, why are we not getting more of their perspective and their family history? And I feel like we do get more of Mary Grace's um, trauma history than we do their history. So I'm not really sure kind of what the decision was around that, Hmm. but certainly we can view Dr. Gardner as kind of a a story of, of white saviorism as well of, you know, well, as soon as he comes in, you know, Armand gets better. 
suspiciously Ellen does not. So I don't know. I just, I, again, I, I have questions about Dr. Gardner and kind of his, um, wow. Again, that exceptionalism that, that, that Southern medical exceptionalism that we saw in the 1800s of, okay, everywhere else has their own medical care, but, but New Orleans is different. You know, the, the South is different mm-hmm. and it requires unique treatment. So it, in some ways it kind of upholds this idea of white supremacy of like, okay, well, these white doctors, like they have almost like these special skills and the special knowledge that allows them to continue to hold power um, over these communities, which he does. Cause he, Ultimately, the decision lies with him of whether or not he's going to make time in his schedule to um, to visit Cecile's family, to visit Armand um, or not. Hmm. So I think I think just kind of to, to summarize as well, it, it feels a little bit separated. The narrative of Dr. Gardner and of race in general in the book from maybe some of the realities of New Orleans, both both then and today. Hmm. Hmm. I think something that the book does get right, because I kept thinking, as you were talking about even the Tiger King era, when people really don't know what to do, like certain ideas just kind of get thrown out like spaghetti against the wall. And thinking about like the early Imagine video that was coordinated by celebrities. (laughs) I do think something that resonates with me having read this book during the COVID era is People are just trying different things and the responses are so wide ranging, right? There are people who are very publicly mourning and doing kind of more conventional 19th century, very public displays of grief and emotion. There are people who are rallying around events. I I think something that does feel relatable that maybe I wouldn't have found to be all that compelling five years ago is that fact, right? We lived through it. We lived through celebrities like trying to give us pep talks while inside their mansions. It didn't really get very far. Where I do, you know, think it kind of misses the the landing a little bit, unfortunately, is kind of with the overall arc of Cecile, right? We really just kind of don't maybe get the stories that we want. You're so given this glimpse in the first book that we meet her, book two, about grandpa, right? Having this whole life out at sea. And I think there's places where this series like wants to play with New Orleans, kind of being a port town, but doesn't really want to deal with it. Um, I, I learned recently that men were 12 times more likely to die of yellow fever just by virtue of like where they were spending time. So, you know, checkmark for kind of making Armand, unfortunately, like a near victim, but also it does make it harder to tell that story through the eyes of two little girls, right? Like, there, I just feel like as adult readers, uh, there's so much more that I want to get. I checked out a book called Fever from the library or The Fever and um, very quickly put it down. It just was like not going to be how I'm going to spend my time around these books. But yeah, I think maybe in 10 more years, if we're able to revisit, it would be awesome to like meet these people again. And maybe they just enjoy Mardi Gras this time and, and they don't have to like suffer the death of Ellen or or someone else. Yeah. You know, I, I think too about, um, about Cecile and Mary Grace, you know, all that they're going to see potentially mm. in their lifetime. Like, I don't know if that's something, and, and, you know, when I compare the 1800s to like the 1900s and, you know, Allison, I know you talk a lot about like the industrial revolution and kind of those changes that happen, but I, I just think about, you know, they're about to also go through a civil war. Yeah. Like when is, when is enough enough for these girls, you know? Um, so I think that's a really good point too, just thinking about, okay, how much, 
how much can we understand of all that's going on in the world, you know, through them? They meet Kirsten. How does it go? Oh, gosh. No. No, they don't meet. Why? Because she dies on the boat or like, like they're on the Mississippi River and they cross paths. What happens? Oh, no, I I just I don't know if it would go well. Okay, like for for which party, like all the parties or just Kirsten? I feel like Kirsten is just totally in a different class. Okay. Like she will look up and she will see them on the top part of the steamboat. And she'll be like, mom, why can't we go on like the oh, top part of the steamboat? Classic. She'll be like, that's we're singing birds. That is she's not, not there. Yeah. Um, I think she's not there. I, I, I don't know where she's at. Who knows? Kirsten doesn't know where Kirsten she's at. Kirsten doesn't know. <laughs> singing bird doesn't know. We're yeah. not given any interior monologue. It's so strange. They picked, you know, I mean, they picked 1853 so deliberately, right? Like they wanted us there so badly in the middle of this epidemic. One thing I really do take away is the fact that we're living like effectively six months apart by the time we're done with these books from Kirsten's world and Marie Grace and Cecile's book. And what a different country. Right. Like it really is as if we're not even talking about experiences that have anything in common with each other. Kind of a cool takeaway, but I don't know why everyone has to like have a near death experience for us to to meet all these folks, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I th- I mean, I think about that all the time, too, just like what these girls were going to see and, you know, in their time which I think just offers a really interesting perspective. So I think I, I'm currently, you know, just full, full <laughs> honesty. Like I have rewatched the Gilded Age for the third time now. Like it's just something to have on the background. I'm not talking about, you know, interesting, wealthy black families who are not given center stage. Um, so I think even then, like watching these teenagers, mm. I'm like, you guys might see like the sexual revolution wow. in the city. Like this might be too much, you know, depending mm. on on how you survive the, the Spanish flu outbreak. But I do think about that, like of just how culture has mm-hmm. changed like so much in that time. And I'm not sure if it's going to change so much culturally for Cecile and Mary Grace. So again, that's like a historian question, but it, it is interesting to think about, you know, kind of again, that like cyclical how much is really going to change for them, you know, within 50, 60 years. Well, I mean, I kind of am interested in your experience of like what you've witnessed in terms of not a one-to-one comparison, but, you know, iconically in these books, there's that trading space plot line where they trade spaces at a Mardi Gras ball or a children's ball, which seems somewhat unbelievable to us, you know, from the distance of 2022. But, you know, it, it does show how segregated the celebrations were. And I'm wondering, like, we've heard from some listeners that that kind of sense of segregated celebration in Mardi Gras is still pervasive in, in different aspects of the culture. Like, is that something that resonates with you or that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I could not tell you maybe how they are today um, because I've never been invited to one, like, sad face. But they Whoa. are very, they're seen as, like, very exclusive, even in the Bayou regions. You know, it is, like, the the top of the top are, mm. you know, cr- literally crowned, like, your Mardi Gras king and queen. And it's, like, it's a big deal. Like, mayors um, are, you know, go to these things. Um, you know, people, the top people in our community, like, go to these things. So I think it's interesting to see, like, oh, like, that is still mm. very much a fact today. And I think um, the segregation aspect as well is still very much alive. I think there are some iconic, historic, you know, um, 
black Mardi Gras balls and crews that are um, that just have such a rich history as well. But, you know, when you stop to think about, okay, why did these need to be formed Mm -hmm. in the first place, you know, Mm -hmm. separately, I think it it reads very differently. Mm -hmm. So have you participated in Mardi Gras, if not in kind of a higher level ball? Yes. Um, So I will say, um, you know, because of my mom's work, we participated in a lot of different Mardi Gras. So there's like the country Mardi Gras, which is more um, local people Mm -hmm. kind of just getting together their cars and their parades that they put on. So in North Louisiana, at one of the national park sites um, in Eunice, so at the Eunice site, they have... um, what it, it, the name is escaping me right now, but essentially it's like the country Mardi Gras. So you will still have people on horses. Um, it's very traditional in that they collect food from my husband's partaking in this. So he's like <laughs> way more Cajun and connected to that countryside than I am. But essentially, like they go around and they collect food and they make like a big gumbo mm-hmm. at the end with it. And that's like still practice today. Um, in New Orleans, it is definitely a lot. There's a lot of like celebrity. It's a huge deal um, for our city. So I know we haven't been able to really have parades for like the past couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see the return of that as well. Um, so we'll be going. I think we, we were unable to go this year. But so I think 2023 is going to be the year when we return to New Orleans for some of those parades as well. And I've marched in them. Those were less fun. So it was less fun to like actually be in one and more fun to actually watch one from the outside. Why is it less fun to be in it? Um, I think it's like, first of all, just eight miles of being in a wow. marching band. <laughs> Not to, I, I don't want to come off too cool. Like, I don't want to make your listeners feel unheard. Um, wow. But I, I was in the band and my husband is a band director now. So I always That's try to make excuses cool. to not go marching with them. This is very long and very hot. And um, again, the books do a great job of just describing like how oppressive it can be in the, in the summer, in the spring, you know, at that time with the heat and also kind of just dealing with people who maybe take Mardi Gras very seriously when you're, um, when you're marching in one. So I, I much prefer to be on the outside now looking in. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, honestly, like I know you're an expert in anxiety, but I got anxiety, like looking up stuff about Mardi Gras. And I saw that some of the churches on the parade route like sell bathroom passes <laughs> and I just immediately hit a panic like what if you don't have access to a bathroom I mean that's where my head goes <laughs> yeah um I wouldn't know how to answer that because I always plan like that's why I make friends with people specifically like on the route so my mom has a house on the route in her area and that's also like a wow. very like that's a cultural hallmark of like she invites everybody around and she's like look if you need food if you need water if you need a restroom wow my home is open to you So it is like a very, it's almost like bragging rights to say like, okay, well, we have a home on the route. Like you can, you can stop off on the route. You are invited into our home. So I always make sure that I have a backup because I will, you know, even this book again, I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to be there for the next outbreak. You know, I'm finding a private bathroom. Like I'm finding the most hygienic spaces. (laughs) Wow. A hero for for our times, honestly. I mean, that's what, that's where my head would be. I'd be really worried about that. Yeah. That's where my first, I don't know. Like I work with a lot of teens now and I think we forget that like in school, we're not allowed to, like schools have rules around when you're allowed to use the rest room and not. I don't know if you guys experienced that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has instilled in me a deep fear to just find um, find an option for a restroom at every parade. Iconic. Truly. So we're not, we're not necessarily putting this at the top of our list for people who are looking for like 
you know, interesting reads right now in 2022. You mentioned you love The Gilded Age, not so much on Tiger King. What else has kind of been really fulfilling for you to read, explore, check out a craft maybe you've really liked in the past few years? Yeah, um, I have really been enjoying playing the video game Red Dead Redemption 2, (laughs) which takes place in 1899 in a city that is suspiciously called um, San Dene mm-hmm. and suspiciously looks like New Orleans. Yes. So my husband and I have really been enjoying kind of engaging with that narrative and that storytelling. Because um, I remember I was playing with him and I was like, wow, this place looks like suspiciously familiar. And he's like, well, it's, it's based off of New Orleans. Like it's based off places <laughs> in, New, in Louisiana. And I remember like moving around the game and just thinking like this place has not changed like to this day. Like it (laughs) looks exactly the same in 1899, 1911 and, you know, to today. So I'm sure the New Orleans we're seeing today is is pretty similar to what um, what Marie Grace and Cecile are seeing as well. Um, I'm really enjoying even rereading. I feel like I am anywhere but the 1850s. So I'm in the Regency era right now, rereading a lot of like Jane Austen's work. So I've come to like have a new appreciation for that. I know, I don't know if we're ready. I don't know if we're ready for that. What do you mean? But I don't know. I just, I just feel like, so, so in Pride and Prejudice, right? Cause that's the first one I wanted to reread. You know, there's a line where Mrs. Bennett is like, well, Jane just has a cough. Like, I'm sure she's fine. And I was like, look, I've read Little Woman. This cannot end well for her. You cannot put, it's Chekhov's cough. Like, if there is a cough, like, she, and she's the good one. Like, she's Mm. the one that's going to, like, help the family. This just cannot end well for her. Um, So I've really been enjoying that. And I've also, like I said, been enjoying, like, video games set in the 1890s, the Gilded Age. So I feel like I'm kind of at the the beginning of the 1800s and then at the very end. So I'm really trying to find more media that maybe puts me more squarely, squarely in the middle, but maybe not in um, in the Civil War because I've lived through too many reenactments, I think, to find, um, find joy in those right now. I love that so much. Um, you said off air that you've been enjoying Bridgerton. Did you like season two? Mm. So I actually have not finished it. So my husband and I are going to finish it tonight. I know, I feel like I keep bringing up things and then (laughs) I haven't actually finished them. So we have started it. And then uh, um, my husband is like, are we going to watch the Brigadoon show (laughs) tonight? I was like, so close, so close. (laughs) So he has been very invested in the romance um, between the oldest Bridgerton child and Miss Sharma. So I think, you know, for his sake, you know, I'm trying to wait until Friday, you know, when he has off after school to, you know, give him, give him that, um, that retreat that's from beautiful. school to kind of, kind of enjoy that time. Um, so that's something we've really been enjoying together as well of just like the ultimate escapism, if you will. It truly is. I mean, Shonda, you can't go wrong with Shonda, a Shonda <laughs> project. That's how I feel. But yeah, I was watching that when I had pink eye, which my students gave to me and I'm just getting over pink eye for a second time so i mean in my mind like now bridgerton is linked to pink eye so i'm i'm trying to work through that is what i'm saying <laughs> but um i love to hear that you're rereading jane austen you know she's my fave like persuasion's my favorite book of all time and my favorite quote from that book is time will explain and i feel like that's you know mm-hmm. something i think about a lot these days you know not to bring us to like a sour topic or more serious but i do think about the people who listen to the show and us like living with anxiety and i'm just wondering if you know like what are some tips you can give us like folks living with anxiety for whatever reason like what are some kind things we can either read for ourselves do for ourselves yeah so um first and foremost just the knowledge that 
how do I want to put this? You know, yes, we are all living through the same thing, but we are all experiencing this trauma differently. So if you need to find a therapist, um, now is the time. Like now is the time to go to therapy. It's more popular than ever before. All the kids are doing it. Um, you can try it out. I always say to people, you can enter. It is perfectly okay to interview a few therapists before you find a good fit and find somebody you know that you feel comfortable with. You know, if you're at a university, a lot of universities have free mental health resources on campus. You can even call the number on the back of your insurance card and say, like, I need you to find me a therapist in my area who accepts my insurance. And that, you know, you have a caseworker whose one job is to do that for you. Mm. Um, so I guess as a therapist, I have to I have to put that plug in, you know, not not sponsored by therapy. <laughs> I would say, secondly, just engaging Engaging with the things that you genuinely love without guilt, which I know is easier said than done. So, you know, Mary, you might be able to speak more on this with bibliotherapy, but I think even working through my through my own therapy of recognizing, you know, what is a healthy level of disassociation versus an unhealthy level. So I think just in finding the things that you enjoy and then unabashedly and unashamedly, you know, taking time for those things and getting really radical about the things that you love and the passions that you have and connecting with others, whether in person or through online spaces, you know, is, is so important because really what anxiety, what anxiety and trauma is about is it, it's really just us telling ourselves, you know, from the messages that we've received that for whatever reason, like we are undeserving of feeling well, mm. or we are undeserving of connecting with others. So I think, you know, through therapy and through connection, those are some ways we can really maybe challenge some of those messages that we're telling each other um, and telling ourselves more importantly. So I know I wish it could be bubble bath. <laughs> I wish it could be, you know, um, I'm trying to think of another like stereotypical self-care activity. I wish you could just like ride your horse away. Wow. If you if you want a horse, like I wish you could just like ride away from these problems, but really, you know, to me, it comes down to, um, to connection, you know, to connecting with others, whether through a mental health professional, um, or, or connecting with your community, you know, whether that's a community from which you come from, or one that you create for yourself. That's so beautiful. Like, I love all of those tips and, and advice. Like, I feel like that's beneficial for me to hear. So thank you for saying that. Like, it was helpful for me to hear that today. And, you know, I loved what you said about pursuing your hobbies. And I think something that makes me think of is like we're living in this time of like, even when we're working from home, like everyone has to be thinking about work and everything has to be about productivity and having something that's a hobby that you have no intention of monetizing. It's just something you're doing for how it makes you feel is such a vital thing. Um, and I know I like I'm trying to make more time for that myself, but, you know, that those are great tips. Yeah. Well, and even when I think about hobbies, like it's such a, it's such a form of rebellion too, of to say like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage in work. I'm not going to engage in productivity. I am working solely on producing endorphins for myself mm -hmm. or, you know, some wow. form of, of just like radical, um, radical self-care. You know, I, I don't know if self-care could be practiced, practiced slightly without that form of, you know, I'm, I'm setting a boundary and I'm taking this time for myself to focus on something that isn't work because, you know, work has permeated like so much of our lives. And I think we see it even in the 1800s. We're like, who is Thaddeus dad? <laughs> who, is, who is dad, Dr. Dad without, without his profession, you know? Wow. 
who you know who is Cecile's dad if not a um a stone mm -hmm. I, I think he's a stonemason I'm not sure of like the specific words that he uses if you know if he's not an, an artist right. and even her mom too of like you know she defined by she is a hard worker so I think we're going to you know as a culture distance ourselves from you know okay well I'm a therapist yes but I am also a person mm -hmm. outside of those times who needs to play video games <laughs> who needs to fail at needlepoint and other <laughs> hobbies um you know to form meaning yeah. out of that wow that's beautiful thank you for sharing that that's awesome yeah and you just made me think about that line from chorus line that's like who am i anyway am i my resume <laughs> you know thoughts and prayers to beanie feldstein after the reviews <laughs> of funny girl thinking about you um i think you will rally from this yes anyway circling back um is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners Hmm. I guess when thinking about like the most salient point from these books. So I know we talk about this in every like American girls book, right? But just like the importance, it, again, it goes back to like friendships and connection, but also solidifying that connection with yourself. Cause we see at times where Marie Grace and Cecile are maybe not so connected to each other and not like, Oh, you have a dead mom. Like, what is that like for you? We're like, Cecile, this is not, this is not the time. This is not, not, not an appropriate time. Not yet. Wrong, wrong moment for that. So I think even, you know, examining our connections with ourselves, I always try to remind, especially, you know, um, women or women presenting people, you know, who are going through those points of like, what does it mean to be a caretaker for others? really examining that of like, what relationship do I have to myself? And I think American Girls as a series, as a art form is just kind of perfect for examining that of like, okay, am I a Molly? Am I a Felicity? Mm -hmm. Am I Addie? You know, kind of examining who am I in relation to these characters, which will therefore make it, I think, um, easier to connect with others when you know yourself. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. So Victoria, if you would like people to find you in any kind of way on the internet in a safe way, is there a best way to reach out to you or to follow you on social media if that's something you'd like people to do? Yeah, absolutely. So I document my work as a community mental health professional at mycarismyoffice.com. So if you are also a healthcare professional who has um, cars full of worksheets. That's where you can find me. You can also find me on social media at my car is my office. Um, and I also have a private practice where I see clients all over the state in Louisiana over telehealth. Um, so if that is something, you know, if that's the type of support that your listeners are looking for, I'd be happy to support them through that journey or to connect them to another mental health professional that can. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And we so appreciate you sharing your time and your talents with us. Yeah, thank you all, um, you know, for all that you have done through us for the past um, for the past couple of years. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We so appreciate this truly wonderful community that we get to be a part of. If you want to follow the show or be in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at American Girls Pod. You can follow us on Twitter at A Girls Pod and on Facebook. You can find Allison at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney and on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. We so look forward to joining you on our next episode. See you real soon.